Hello, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on in which part of the world you are at this moment. Welcome to this event co-organized by the Ferrodrology Institute for Africa and the International Development Department at the London School of Economics and Political Science. My name is Iyob Bachagabramariam. I'm a fellow at the International Development Department and convener of the African Development Course in the Just Ended Academic Year. The title of our today's event is Decolonizing Development Studies, Practical Steps in Course Designing, Reading Selections, and Classroom Discussions. I took the initiative of co-organizing this webinar with my colleagues at the Federal Institute for Africa and the International Development Department after, I would say, a successful year of convening the African Development Course. I revised the course that I inherited from my colleagues, the late Professor Tandikam Kandwari and Dr. Laura Mann using decolonial perspectives. There are several reasons to teach or study development studies in general and African development in particular using decolonial perspectives. One of the reasons can be as Baventura de Souza Santos argues, there cannot be social justice without cognitive justice or as Sabellun Gatsheni illustrated in his very influential work that political and economic freedom cannot be realized without full epistemic freedom. I'm sure there are several other equally valid reasons why we need to decolonize the academia or the overall socioeconomic and political systems are called the world. However, our task today is particularly focused on the practical issues around organizing and delivering a course using the colonial perspectives. Epistemological, methodological, theoretical, or conceptual debates cannot continue forever without particularly addressing some of the challenges and also opportunities that we have in terms of course designing, the use and selection of reading materials, and most importantly, in handling discussions and debates with our students. We have invited three guests to share with us their perspectives and also practical experiences with this regard. I will introduce them briefly before going to the first round of our contribution. Then uh, I will ask our first speaker to take the floor. So, our first speaker is Dr. Rosalva Icaza. Dr. Rosalva is a decolonial feminist and associate professor in global politics, gender, and diversity at the International Institute of Social Studies, Erasmus University of Rotterdam in the Netherlands. She is a member of the Red Transnational Otoro Saberes, co-convinced the, the Transnational Learning Group nurturing each other and collaborate with Samili Mokutan in Sanche. I'm not sure whether I'm pronouncing it properly, Rosalba, in Yungtan, Mexico. And Dr. Rosalba is joining us from Mexico City in Mexico. Uh, our second speaker in the first round is Dr. Yirga Galawaldeyes. Yirga is a senior lecturer, multidisciplinary researcher and writer based in Cartin University's Center for Human Rights Education. His research focuses on the critical study of development, education, and law, and the importance of lived experiences and epistemic diversity for decolonial and sustainable futures. 
Dr. Weldeyes teaches postgraduate courses face-to-face -face and online, and he has won university and industry awards for teaching, research, and creative writing. Dr. Yirga is joining us from Perth, Western Australia. So I, as you can see, there is 13 hours difference between our first and second speaker. Our third speaker is in the first round is Dr. Altea Maria Rivas. Altea Maria is a lecturer in Global Development Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. She has held uh, positions at Sussex University and York University in Toronto. Altea Maria's research focuses on exploring the politics of development, conflict, humanitarian intervention, and peace through the lens of the everyday. Before starting her academic career, Altea Maria worked for 12 years in the areas of diplomacy, post-conflict reconstruction, gender and development, and governance with various international NGOs and local international organizations in Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, and the Middle East. Dr. Altea Maria is joining us from London. We will run the seminar in three rounds using guiding questions and also with brief moments of responding to questions from our virtual participants. And uh, we'll have at least uh, a maximum of 10 minutes to respond to your questions or comments. So feel free to forward your questions starting from the, uh, the presentation from our first speaker. My colleagues, uh, Kojo Adjivai from the Far East Lalgene Institute for Africa and Anna Galton from the International Development Department will help me in moderating and forwarding the questions so that I can present it to our speakers. So uh, I will ask our first speaker, Dr. Rosalba, to uh, present her views, particularly uh, using these guiding questions that I'm, I've prepared. That is, from your experience, what are the key challenges and opportunities in designing courses using decolonial perspectives? If, if possible, I would be happy to hear practical steps that you took to address the challenge and also to maximize on the opportunities. You have five minutes, Dr. Rosalba. You have the floor. Thank you, Ajo. Thank you very much. First of all, I'm, I'm, I just want to say that I'm very happy to be here. It, it was a beautiful invitation, especially as a former student of ISS. I couldn't say no. So I'm very happy. I'm honored that you thought of me to be here. This is the first time that I'm also hosted by a, an institute that is focused on African um, studies, uh, which is not surprising. And this is where I want to start today. Uh, given that the whole area, well, the whole idea of area studies is, uh, is a modern colonial construction and a misrepresentation of the plurality of the world. So it's, it's, it's really very few opportunities that I have had in my life to engage with um, scholars from Africa or experts uh, in different uh, countries from the continent. And often the cases that I'm um, asked to represent actually um, all, at, all, at, all Latin America or speak on behalf of all Latinas, which is, as I have just mentioned, um, one of the misrepresentation of the modern colonial institutions in which we work. But in relation to the, the, the question that you asked um, us to reflect about, about the challenges, I want to share with you three main challenges. And if I have time, um, um, speak a little bit about the opportunities that I see go hand in hand with these challenges. And the first one is what I have just referred to as a decolonial feminist teacher, I think that we, in the field of development studies, we um, are constantly challenged 
with the fact that we give so much attention to um, what divide us in terms of the um, different colonial genealogies that mark how these different regions of the world are being um, uh, misrepresented, appropriated. And there are different ways in which we are confronted to find ways of learning each other, despite this misrepresentation, despite these imperial designs that keep us ignorant uh, from each other. So this is the first challenge that I want to put on the table. The second challenge is that I have encountered um, a lot of um, lack of safety in the field of development studies. Um, let me be more specific about that. In January this year, I chair a panel uh, where all the speakers were women of color working in the field of development studies. They are researchers, practitioners, teachers. And we articulated a common point of departure as one that takes uh, the field of development studies as unsafe for dialogue and for learning each other in the way that Afro-Caribbean feminist Jackie Alexander invite us to do. So we are, as women of color, the colonial feminists finding inspiration, for example, from the colonial feminist philosopher and popular educator, Maria Lugones, um, in calling ourselves women of color, a term that mediates our coalitional doings among those who enflesh epistemologies, but also ontologies, histories, bodies, uh, that remain outside dominant feminist theoretical praxis and politics within the field of development studies, but also outside the field. And the third challenge that I would like to mention today is a challenge of positionality. We're constantly asking where we position across the colonial divide. When we redesign curricula that takes into account decolonial thinking, uh, a praxis of ethical orientation that emerged from um, struggles for land uh, in the context of Aviala. And therefore, we are constantly asking when we engage in redesigning our curricula, in which ways we are implicated in the suffering and the consumption of the life of others and of Earth. This is our ethical orientation when thinking about curricula. Overall, what we have found is that teaching in development studies has failed to be geohistorically positioned. With this, I mean that the way we transmit knowledge that we generate via research is not positioned and often contribute, contributes to occlude instead of revealing the geo and body political location of the knowledge we are teaching. And this has, this has been expressed in the consumption of decolonial thinking as just another approach to be um, added into our curricula, which is something that we um, as the colonial feminists are very concerned about. Um, I think that I still have one minute, isn't it? <laughs> so let me just briefly tell you about the opportunities that I, that I think are open in relation to these three uh, challenges that I just put on the table. The lack of space to learn each other, the, the, the unsafety of the field and um, the question of positionality. I think that as the colonial feminist, my point of departure while redesigning the curricula in the field of development studies is acknowledging that universities and therefore curricula as we know them today are a consequence of the expansion of European modernizing project, just like the nation states and the capitalist system. So as the colonial feminists, we are articulating how this origin has been constantly cover up 
by normative claims of higher education as a positive common good. A decolonial perspective on universities understands them as implicated in the epistemic violence present in modern colonial geopolitics of knowledge and in the reproduction of epistemic apparatuses that per perpetuate those inequalities that made us desire to go to Europe and be educated by European institutions. And more concretely, in my teaching, this has meant, in my classroom, this has meant to invest time in the classroom in each session to show how the access of differentiation along race, class, gender, have been essential for establishing the disciplinary canon of development studies. And concurrently, how these canons have been essential to reproduce this access of discrimination. Perhaps in the following intervention, I can expand a little bit about this last point. Okay, that was a, a very useful introduction to our panel, to our webinar. And I hope uh, our participants have already noted some key issues that Rosalba has highlighted. And uh, I would ask, I would politely ask you all to raise questions and comments or something that you want to be, you, know, you want her to clarify further. So I will give the floor to our second speaker, Dr. Yirga Galau. Uh, can you share with us your experience and also what are the key challenges that you face in terms of designing courses using the colonial perspectives? And you also have five minutes. Um, uh, thank you very much. I think I, I would um, probably prefer to say a little bit the uh, motivation, the ways in which I was drawn to develop or to uh, follow a decolonial approach to my teaching. Um, I say that because it's, it's very relevant to bringing voices that are not uh, familiar, that are not available uh, in the academia. Uh, as, as you know, I'm from Ethiopia and uh, as an Ethiopian, I, uh, we are associated with poverty and the development is and something that tries to bring people out of poverty. But poverty as a concept uh, is different from the lived experience that I have as a person living in Ethiopia. Growing up in Ethiopia, uh, especially being close to rural side of Ethiopia, I grew up very close to nature and I learned in the traditional Ethiopian education system from um, uh, uh, scholars, priests, monks, and farmers who have enormous knowledges and ideas about the world. Uh, but when I went to education, everything that existed in my experience has been excluded. And we've been told through education that we are poor. And in order to change our lives, we must understand Western knowledge. We must abandon our language and study in English. And in that process, then I found myself or discovered myself with this imposed identity of poverty. Uh, so for me, you know, it is a realization that uh, poverty is not about poor people. It's not about helping people to have food or clothing and so on. It is instead to invent a category called poor and associated with what Westerners or um, uh, capitalists can offer or, or can do uh, to, to advance their own interests. And the second point I want to relate with this is the question of education, how we are educated in places like Ethiopia, uh, where 
education becomes a process of alienating people from their lived experiences and cultures. And a place or a country that has enormous diversity and history where probably 99% of the people do not speak a European language, the higher education system and universities are taught in English. And it's very difficult even to let people who study in the system understand that this is a form of mental slavery. This is a form of uh, epistemicide, the killing of our knowledge, the killing of our languages and so on. So, you know, faced with this lived uh, uh, experience and with this reality, my when I get the chance to teach in, in this postgraduate class about development and human rights, the idea was, you know, what, what are the ways, what, how can I approach or create a course that can bring these issues into the floor because the issues are also shared across other places. So in uh, the way, the designing of a course in, in uh, around decolonial or critical uh, ideas is by uh, considering how domination, how these ideas of uh, development on human rights are reproduced and distributed to different parts of the world it are, and are also imposed in people's ideas to give them identities that can be governed and controlled. So one aim is to resist that domination. The second important aim is to listen to or understand the silenced voices, the voices that are not heard in academia, in universities, and so on. So the challenges that comes with this type of aim, obviously, is how to find these voices, how to listen to those ideas. Ideas, for example, when I was in Ethiopia growing up in the rural side of the country, uh, the ideas that I learned from those people, it's very hard to bring them into the university and, to, and talk about them. Uh, where I, I, I live in Australia where indigenous people uh, uh, lived for centuries, but academia is, dominated by the ideas that are produced since the white community or the white society came to Australia. So bringing that voice to the floor requires an enormous exercise in trying to uh, articulate to find uh, those voices from different fields. I'll probably say more later on in terms of how uh, we could be able to do that. So. Um, in, 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 in a nutshell, uh, it, to achieve this aim of resisting domination and finding new voices, uh, designing uh, my, the course involves uh, creating this, uh, uh, especially in relation to development, uh, thinking areas where systems of domination are occurring. For example, critically studying about institutions. Uh, we have institutions such as, including the nation state, which is, uh, uh, a recent colonial construction, uh, which perpetuates itself through. Uh, so, uh, you know, critically thinking about uh, the nation state itself, critically thinking about corporations, uh, um, uh, thinking about international financial institutions, which are uh, financial governing institutions, such as the IMF, the World Bank, and the WTO. What are their voting mechanisms? What are their operations? And how do they, what are the language they use? Uh, so thinking about this area is very important as institutions. Another area is thinking about knowledge or ideas that are dominant. That, that, for example, studying theories instead of lived experiences, where we start from concepts such as a state of nature, scarcity, economic concepts, all of these things uh, are, uh, take us away from the lived experience of people, from the daily languages that they have. So thinking about ideas and working 
and a kind of decolonial way around those ideas becomes important. And certainly also thinking about practices. Uh, we can consider, for example, policies, programs, aid, foreign aid, for example. Uh, a lot of people assume that aid is given to uh, uh, alleviate hunger and, and for humanitarian purposes, but a very insignificant little amount of aid goes to that area, whereas significant amount of aid is given to adjust and maintain a colonial structure that continuously perpetuates the uh, subjugated or lower status of these uh, poor countries. So studying on these different areas, I uh, also think about methodologies and a methodology that uh, uh, one of them, the methodologies that I follow is what I call a critical appreciative dialogue. Uh, by critical appreciative dialogue, I'm looking critically at systems of knowledges, ideas, uh, institutions, and practices that dominate people. So we need that critical language that the students can have uh, um, the ability to articulate their own voices and critically see the world, but also appreciative in a sense that what are the ways in which we can appreciate the existence of life knowledge, ideas, creativity, resilience within and among people who are excluded, who are forgotten, who are uh, um, left outside of the discourse of development. Uh, okay. And the dialogue okay. is then bringing these, these things together uh, 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 in general. So to have finished, what, what I just, what, just in a sentence, what I was trying to say was, you know, I start from my lived experience so that I encourage students to, take, to talk about their lived experiences. Mm -hmm. And then I go to the designing the course by thinking its aim and also thinking about different uh, areas where we should critically engage. And also finally by trying to appreciate the ways which new ideas and the new uh, insights can be drawn from. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you, Yuga. I think you presented uh, us both uh, an insightful way of organizing a course, but also I think it's quite challenging because it might be difficult for, for us as educators to find relevant materials that will support our ideas and also even how to translate this into uh, a course or how to shape classroom discussions and debates might also be another layer of challenge. So we'll definitely have more time to raise all those issues and thank you for your contribution. So I'll give the floor to Altea Maria and respond to the same question. You have five minutes. Okay, I probably um, won't take five minutes. I just have a few points that I wanted to touch on um, and both uh, Rosalba and Yoga have um, touched on some of these already, I think. So for me, uh, the greatest challenges are often institutional dynamics um, and particularly, to be honest, the the weight of whiteness, uh, white fragility in the academy and elitism. And that manifests itself in different ways. Um, so in one of the ways in which it manifests itself is the, just the refusal to engage with different types of knowledge, different ways of being, and also different bodies um, beyond the narratives of suffering within the academy. So for me, the decolonial imperative involves a decentering of Europe and a dismantling of power. Like that is at the core of the project. And that means really a shifting of power in the academy and in, in higher education institutions, which also has very, it's not just a theoretical thing, right? It has very material and everyday consequences that many academics and researchers and, and also students sometimes are not willing to engage with. And so the pushback or refusal to engage with, um, you know, decolonizing the curriculum or educational justice to allow different approaches into the academy, it has been notable. And I think, you know, it's important to, to state that and, and to not go along with the kind of common discourse now that everybody's kind of on board with this, right? Because that's really not the case. Um, and I think it's important 
when these when the, this pushback occurs to name these behaviors for what they are so therefore to actively name racism in terms of the blockages that are put up by those in the academy against kind of the decolonial projects against scholars of color against different ways of um, of knowing and that being incorporated into what we see as valid knowledge and ways of being another way that this manifests itself and rosalba talked about this as well um particularly in terms of the experience of women of color academics and that's i think the hijacking of the decolonial and and also the anti-racism discourse by institutions and academics um, that ultimately I think a lot of the time want to recenter themselves and recenter Europe um, through using you know particular ideas and terminologies. So the decolonizing the university student movement and BLM have called for a more public debate on the colonial nature of knowledge in the university, but also the need to address racial injustice globally. Um, and both of these struggles are are decades and actually centuries long, right? So they're not new struggles, but there's been this like you know, focus on them that's um, because of these two movements and that's notable and important. However, now I think too often those who actively practice racism and microaggressions against colleagues of color and, and students sometimes now also want to adopt the decolonial and anti-racist language um, and therefore center themselves in this work. And that makes it difficult for scholars of color or those who are committed to um, social and educational justice in particular to do that work, right? Because we're forced to do it in unsafe spaces and that causes you know, emotional stress, it prevents careers from moving forward. It, it just, it makes it difficult to exist within the space of the academy really. Um, and so, I think those are two really important challenges that I've encountered and that many of my um, colleagues of color and allies have encountered. And in, in terms of strategies, I think, you know, one of them is to call out racism and Eurocentrism. So to name that behavior when, when we see it, right? And to not let it um, be excused as, you know, uh, academic independence, for example, right? Or um, the appropriate things that students need to learn as part of the canon, because that in itself is, is um, objectable. And also, there's a need to create safe spaces like Rosalba talked about, you know, that she had done this year and, and, and before to do the work with colleagues and of color, but also, you know, white allies who are interested in and have the same types of politics, right? Because it's not just a matter of, and I think we'll talk about this in the next question, just, you know, reforming or changing the curriculum. It's, it's political, right? Um, and also maybe thinking about different types of spaces or creating different types of spaces in the academy or outside of the academy that can be learning spaces, right, where we can do this work. So it, like learning doesn't always just have to take place in the academy and actually, you know, the decolonial knowledge that that knowledge is in the community itself. It's not in the academy, right? So rethinking kind of what we see as valid spaces of knowledge, um, production and cultivation. Okay, great. Thank you, Altia. And uh, I think you, the specific issue that you have highlighted at the, at the beginning of your, uh, your presentation, the institutional dynamics and the extent to which that, that institutional setting is not uh, an easy ground to operate such kinds of ideas and also both implicit and explicit challenges that are embedded within this institutional system is quite a key issue for us to highlight. So uh, I was just looking at some of the questions that were uh, forwarded by our participants. Uh, one thing that uh, I've highlighted here is how institutions can act in order to create safer space for uh, development studies. I think uh, question by Leticia, uh, Leticia Barbosa. Okay. 
I hope my colleagues, uh, either Anna or uh, Kojo, will help me in collecting some of the questions. Uh, while doing so, I have a couple of questions posed uh, for, for all of you. One, in terms of, for, particularly for Resolva, you mentioned about the idea that one of the challenges that we have is uh, to make sure that knowledge is situated in certain kind of geopolitical or epistemological position. And one thing that the mainstream knowledge managed to do is to present itself as something that is universal so that anyone has to accept it and adopt it as part of their learning process. And one thing that the decolonial perspective tries to uh, unravel is that knowledge is situated in certain historical, uh, temporal, or even geopolitical context. I would want, I would really appreciate if you can go further in making this much more clear for anyone who wants to organize their courses in terms of using the colonial perspective, particularly in a sense that we cannot take one particular history as a universal history or one particular center, that means usually Europe or the Western, Western socioeconomic and political history as a point of departure to understand everything across the world. I would be glad if you emphasize on that first. And then I will go to uh, another question, a question in comment for all panelists from the Gidju Samuel Bayene. How is it possible for us to decolonize development studies when all the concepts, theories, and principles by which we are guiding our education systems are rooted in Western ideology? In my view, that is uh, the Gidju's view, our education system has been neglected has been neglecting the indigenous knowledge and practice, and that is one of the areas where we need to start the intervention. I think Yirga would be well positioned to respond to this question as well. I, I would also invite both Rosalba and Altea to respond to this. And uh, let's, let's have these questions in our first round. Rosalba, would you please start? Yes. Um... Well, uh, the, the challenge of positionality, and I, and I think that at the same time, we'll be uh, tapping into some of the comments that uh, Yirga and Antea have already mentioned. Um, the way I practically do is actually following one of the key questions that um, Olivia Rutatsiwa asked us um, to the, those teachers, position in the global north to think about how we teach about development studies. And it's a very practical and, and, and simple, but at the same time, very difficult question to answer. And it's, where do we start to tell the story of development? And I normally start with that question in, in, in my courses. I'm, I'm constantly asking students, okay, where did you hear the first time in your life that you didn't know? That you weren't, that your, the experience of your life or those of your ancestors were actually ignorance. Where this happened? And actually in most of the cases of the students that I teach, in the context of an European institution in the Netherlands that happens to be students like me from the Global South, nonetheless elites because they can speak English, but that they discover themselves racialized the moment they put a, a, a feet in um, in the train going from Eskipol to the, to the Hague. Um, and the common answer is in the school. It is in the school. It's in the formal system of education where 
ideas of um, my own experience, my own life experience as not worthy to be under understood, to be um, explored further, to actually share with others is the moment when I'm constructed and built upon as a non knowledgeable subject. And, um, and this is something that um, immediately cre creates a very interesting, um, and, and you experience that a job, um, a very exp uh, interesting, um, let's say, environment and possibility in the classroom. When we realize that it is a particular institution that creates these ideas of who, we're, uh, of who we are supposed to be in the face of expertise or in when we are confronted with experts on our countries that come from all the countries, but they claim to be experts. That is something that I found extremely violent. And actually, um, I laugh a lot when I found in the UK when I was doing my PhD experts on Mexico telling me what Mexico was about. And I always respond to them, well, I'm not an expert on Mexico. I can say very little about a very tiny area of the country where I was born and raised, but I'm, I cannot claim any expertise on a country of uh, 150 million or something like that. But anyway, um, so that is something that I want to say. I always start with this very practical question in the first session of my, of my classrooms, of my courses, where do we start to tell the story of what is development? Now, I'm, I'm someone that never studied development. I always say this to my students. I'm someone that was trained to be an international relations scholar. So I don't know what is to do development, but I'm nonetheless a product of development, of course. Um, and I always position and situate my own story as someone coming from uh, Latin America, from a specific um, set of policies that uh, tar targeting working class women like my mother, who were uh, very much encouraged to have a particular way of uh, raising kids, raising especially girls who were supposed to go through education in order to be developed, in order to be autonomous and so forth. So it's always, always a dialogue with a personal story as a product of urbanization, industrialization, 1970s in Mexico. But I always come back to the key question that from my point of view is, um, connected to the ethics and the politics of the decolonial, and is what for? What, why are we actually doing this? Why are we actually recovering the voices? Is because we want to educate others with these voices? Is because these voices are going to be consumed again to be incorporated into curriculas? Or there is something else uh, that we can actually do as mentors and teachers when uh, confronting, because sometimes it's a confrontation um, students who don't want to learn from these other experiences that are not the mainstream Western um, experiences of what is supposed to be a modern subject. So these three, these three simple but important questions are like the first introductory um, elements of any course that I teach. And it's not only about development studies. I think that this can be, um, of course, uh, posed in each of the courses that we can be uh, designing, but they have this component of uh, positionality, experience, ethics, okay. and I cannot remember the first one, but this is more or less what I do. Okay, great. Uh, I would ask uh, Altea to respond to, to go next and respond to some of the questions. There are lots of questions coming. So here's one question uh, from Natasha Wimanzi. 
do the colonial spaces have to be exclusive in order to progress the agenda swiftly and accurately? Or is there a space to incorporate those voices who have not grasped the ideas of decolonization and might still be using its language, but not its principles? I think the question directly responds to one of the issues that you talked about, that's the capturing of this, uh, the decolonial agenda. And also from Natasha related to her first question, there is a school of thought that believes that in order to decolonize in development, one must dismantle the entire institution. What are your thoughts on that? Altia. Um, yeah, so I think there are, you know, it, a safe space doesn't have to just be a space for um, scholars of color, right? Um, and we don't want to essentialize. I saw there was a, another question in the chat about um, being situated in the global north. We don't want to essentialize people either, right? So we all have complex and different experiences. And really, it's about your politics, right? Um, and as Rosalba was saying, the, the purpose of what you're doing. So I, I actually favor a team approach in, in kind of like decolonizing knowledge and, and knowledge production, where it's not just a matter of a few faculty of color, right, because that puts all of the burden on, on particular uh, racialized bodies. Um, but the responsibility is, is more than that. And actually, if it's only a few people who's doing it, then often the work that you do in a department, for example, is canceled out by the kind of Eurocentric knowledge and Orientalism that is, is um, you know, situated within the department. So you have one course and one person of color doing something that's that's different or bringing in different types of knowledge and 25 that are, you know, very um, deeply steeped in kind of Eurocentrism, right? So it, it, they, they kind of cancel each other out or cancels out the work that you're doing. Um, but I think a political commitment is also really important that kind of provides the space and time for people to work together um, to rethink um, department narratives and modules systematically through a structured approach and that gives the resources and um, for people to do this and provide some sort of accountability um, mechanism and resources, right? And that team approach, right, with people mm -hmm. with the, the, the correct politics, right, or, or the same similar politics, um, it creates a, a, a sense of shared responsibility of ownership and a public acknowledgement um, that things need to be done differently. And I think it, using that approach, it kind of moves from something you know, decolonizing the curriculum, which is more narrow to um, embedding different ecologies of knowledge within kind of the, the knowledge the, within the academic space, right? And the, the spaces in the department or the other spaces that we kind of occupy. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Alkia. And there are also some questions. The, the education aspect, uh, Yirga, would you mind responding to that question? Plus, there are also a couple of questions directed to you uh, from Roy Chandroy. She's asking, does Dr. Yega have any suggestions to read about deconstructing or decolonizing the concept of poverty? And also about the people who would like to know more about the critical appreciative dialogue that you mentioned. How does it work or some elaboration around these areas? So I know uh, we have kind of been bombarded by very <laughs> useful questions, but let's try to be as brief as possible so that we respond to other questions as well. Okay, thank you. I'll, I'll try to be brief. Uh, for the first question about education, I think it's, it's, it's really very important to, um, to think of the problem of education. And one of the big problems is that in education, the students do not exist. We are not part of the education process. Our language, our experience is not part of education. 
I mean, there is there is no any, uh, I don't know if there is any other example in the world where education can become so crazy as it is in Ethiopia, where you would go to, uh, when I studied law, I studied in English, although law is formulated, legislated in, in the local language. And also I was I meant to go out and practice in the, in the local language. Then I was taught in a language that I would not use to practice, even my teachers, know the local language better than English. So I think it's important to understand what it is doing to us. What it, 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 is, it, is, it is creating a form of mental epistemic or mental slavery where uh, our, our very sense of reality is, is so much uh, distorted. And I think understanding is that, especially in the places like Ethiopia and other places too, uh, is important to uh, to know, to understand, or to be really moved towards changing the system, uh, the medium of education, the content of education, how it can be done could come after realizing this, these issues. And one of the other things that's stopping us also from doing is, is our own interest. We are implicit in the system. You know, unless uh, the, the, the knowledge I, I have is privileged back in Ethiopia, I wouldn't be able to go and become a professor there and, and gain the privilege and so on. So really it's important to understand that education is about few people who benefit from the system. It's not about helping people. It's not about changing the country, especially the rural majority who are more than 80% of the people who live in rural places in Ethiopia. So uh, understanding the system and be to be motivated to change it really comes with this understanding, if we change that, then eventually our own interests also could be realized. Uh, and in relation to uh, understanding poverty, uh, I think, uh, uh, well, I, I think there's, there's writings by uh, people like Ashish Nandi and, and others who reflected on the difference between uh, development, I mean, poverty and destitution, you know? Uh, poverty is not the lack of food and water, but uh, uh, that is destitution. Poverty is a concept and how it is invented and created by experts to kind of talk about uh, abstract uh, uh, measurements, indicators, and totally forget, disregard the poor. So the poor do not exist in development discourses. The students do not exist in education discourses. Education is not about right to education is not about learning from your experience, it's actually the right to Western education that exists. There is no a human right to study your language. There is no human right to study from your experience. There's only a human right to study Western knowledge, Western languages and experiences. Uh, so a critical appreciative dialogue is a combination of three concepts. Uh, it's not uh, dictating anything, it's a kind of allowing to, uh, uh, for different uh, ideas, concepts that seem contradictory, but kind of mutually reinforcing one another to move us forward in advancing critical consciousness and, and epistemologies. So it is to be critical of power and also appreciative of people's agency, people's lived experiences, uh, uh, people who do not have voices, who may, whose ideas are not articulated uh, or, or not referenced, uh, should be part of the, uh, our, our learning and we should be able to learn from them. And the dialogue is a form of engaging by considering these two. And there is one other concept that we can add, which I, 
uh, which is which might be useful is I think epistemic humility. humility is you know how do we become uh, humble because knowledge in the way we understand it or learn in the Western system actually creates a form of identity that makes us uh, um, kind of um, uh, educators and, and change change makers and so on. How do we really go away from that and exercise a form of humility? which says like in the Ethiopian tradition system, for example, to know is to be humble in the face of others, how to conquer the ego, the self that we have and be allowed to become vehicles of relationships, transmission of values such as love, friendship and so on. So this type of approaches would help to enhance our ability to learn from others. Okay. Wow, that's uh, all the contributions, all the responses from our three speakers have been quite uh, enlightening and I, I'm sure there are lots of other questions that are still coming and uh, we'll try to continue to, to address some other issues that we have already uh, outlined here and I'm sure the issues will also be covered one way or another. So in our second question round, I will start with uh, Dr. Altea, then Rosalva, and we'll end with Yirga's contribution in answering to these questions. The, the question that we'll be dealing now is, there's a wide misconception that equates diversity of authors in our uh, particular course outline in terms of geographical origin, gender, or whatever kinds of other categories. There, there's some kind of misconception that this is this with decolonization of the curriculum whilst recognizing the vital role of having diversified authors in our reading list, lists or our reading materials, how can we ensure that the diversity also addresses epistemic uh, elements? So, Altia, you have the floor. Okay, I'll try and be very concise because um, I know we're running short on time. Yeah. So I think when you create a module, um, it's, it's not just about the, the reading list, right? It's you're essentially telling the story of how the world has come to talk about or think about a particular topic or subject or phenomenon. Um, and in that, there is recognition that particular voices, epistemologies, um, and experiences may have been excluded in terms of how you understand these things and in terms of how you see the world, right? So changes in the reading list kind of need to go hand in hand with the retelling of the story, right? The telling of the story of the module and kind of, of our world. Um, and therefore, it's important to think about unlearning the ways in which you've understood these things, your own positionality and um, you know, our global history. And so it's not just recognizing that voices have been marginalized therefore, but also um, challenging epistemic violence. And that involves reimagining the topic, the debates, the story that you're trying to tell in the module. Uh, so you asked for practical examples. So I'm going to give two quick examples. So I teach humanitarian, I'm convening the humanitarian, um, humanitarianism and aid postgraduate degree at SOAS. Um, and, you know, humanitarianism is a field that is steeped in, you know, white saviorhood. You know, it doesn't get worse than that in many ways, right? But in the course that I have, so the core module, one of the, the strategies that I've used um, because I'm a decolonial feminist, just like Rosalva, um, is that I don't start with the history of humanitarianism as a Western project, right? So we begin with re-envisioning humanitarianism, with challenging the idea or the, the terminology of humanitarianism itself and thinking about how these ideas um, have been introduced or thought of in throughout different traditions in the world. So actually the first few weeks of the course is looking at, um, you know, Chinese, Islamic, African and indigenous kind of traditions around um, 
you know, humanitarianism and rethinking what that actually means, right? Uh, so we discuss, I think we start in the, in the fourth week, we then discuss the Western project of humanitarianism. And that project, because we've already talked about how these, you know, these ideas are, how re-envisioning humanitarianism is, can be rooted in different traditions and different people have thought about these things long before it became like a Western project as such. Um, it then, when we begin to talk about the Western project, it's situated in particular ideas. So we re-envision how to understand humanitarianism and the course centers power throughout the entire term and that conversation. So it's a different starting point and therefore you cannot get away from the global hierarchies of power and, and how, and centering that Western project, right? And really recentering different ways of understanding how we relate to each other and different knowledges that are actually better knowledges in this context. I also talk about racialized and gendered experiences of humanitarianism and humanitarian processes, including that of racialized aid workers, right? So it's not just thinking about these things theoretically and kind of historically, there's also recognizing people, you know, we have different perspectives of racialized people and those particular bodies have different experiences within that Western project as well. So it's picking apart how we think about these things and who's important in the story. Okay. Thank you, Altea. Rosalba, how do you answer this issue of you know, conflating diversity of authors with the decolonization of uh, a course or a curriculum? Well, it has been really difficult, um, of course. Um, the decolonial becomes a new uh, participatory, for example, in the context of, of uh, the Netherlands, and this is extremely problematic in many ways. But um, something that I would like to stress here is that um, the way I have been doing it in my classrooms is um, by always going back to one of the principal, let's say, premises of the colonial thinking, that there is no modernity without coloniality. Mm. And when I say this to uh, the students, when uh, we discuss this basic premise, we are constantly questioning also the project of decolonizing the curricula and decolonizing development studies and always situating it as a still a project within the epistemic ter territory of modernity. That is a conversation that is happening in relation to Eurocentric curricula, Eurocentric programs, but that cannot, uh, uh, let's say, um, contain all the struggles that are happening outside. Uh, the university. And for me to situate this project is also helping me to um, um, narrow it down to its um, relevant future in terms of the institution that we call the university, but at the same time uh, give some perspective to the students that are investing their time, their, their energy, their labor in transforming development studies and transforming curricula. Um, and don't take me wrong, I think that is important, but we cannot simply reduce this struggle for, for example, political autonomy uh, from where the decolonial comes from and originates um, in Aviala to the fact of reforming our curricula. So I'm constantly, constantly uh, remembering students, this is very much contained in a very specific institution and we cannot just uh, focus all of our energy on that. It's important, but it's not the whole story. So that is that is like the, the, the general framework in which I locate the discussion and the work that we do. Practically, this has meant that, for example, in one of the courses that I teach uh, in the last term of the MA in Development Studies at ISS, um, is a course that we call Transitions to Social Justice. 
And something that we avoid is using abstractions. We are actually um, establishing a way of working that comes from uh, popular feminism, popular activism in Aviala that is called activated conversations. It's actually something uh, closer to what Jira was explaining. Activated conversations are um, ways of speaking that um, tend to avoid um, expert knowledge on the table. It's not that you don't have to use it, especially us trained as academics. Of course, we're constantly throwing up jargon and it's quite difficult sometimes to explain in uh, plain language uh, what does heteronormativity means or actually what coloniality means. But anyway, we, we are bringing this way of um, talking to each other and instead of using abstractions, we use um, action verbs. Like for example, we speak about the transition that is happening um, um, in global health. And instead of using global health, we use the term healing because we can all say something about healing. Um, we don't need to be necessarily medical doctors, but medical doctors are in the conversation Don't take me wrong. It's not something anti-science, not, not at all. Science has a, a place, a role, but it's not the only role. We decenter uh, that sort of um, expertise as the only one or the universal one, but we have conversations with traditional healers or with people that are going through different process of healing uh, um, colonial, uh, the colonial wound with art and with different uh, ways of intervention. But we are also having conversations about, for example, um, instead of talking just about capitalism, we also bring the term nurturing to go beyond production or productivism as the center of all the conversations that we can have. And therefore you can have um, people that are not necessarily within the confines of the institution of the academia to have conversations with us, with the students. And this goes for terms like, um, instead of um, yeah, um, um, education, we talk about learning. Instead of um, speaking about um, um, migration, because these days you cannot say anything about migration because then there are experts on, of, on migration, no? Anyway, the thing is that instead of speaking just about migration, we, we talk about hosting and traveling because we have all have the experience of hosting and traveling. Um, so we are decentering expert knowledge in my courses, not that we don't speak those concepts, we learn about those concepts, but we also learn to contain them into the very specific context where they emerge, that is the academia. And I, at the beginning, mentioned the academia is product of Eurocentrism and the advance of capitalism. So okay. we need to contain them. Okay, that's quite a revealing a contribution to our understanding of decolonizing our curriculum. And even there's some of the terminologies, I, I remember during the teaching African development, there, there were some new terminologies that um, I was using with my students, and that a new way of naming or framing gives uh, power or some kind of liberates you from that kind of very uh, top-down approach of you know approaching or conceptualizing certain issues and social relations. And thank you, Rosada, uh, for highlighting that. Yirga, what's you what's your experience with regard to diversifying your reading list and how do you respond to people who say that so long as you have a diversified list of having uh, you know some lots of authors from south america or india or uh, pakistan or some from africa have so that you have a, a good uh, course how do you respond to such kind of uh, 
ask questions. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good question. And I think um, uh, there is a lot of value in diversifying, of course, your reading list. And there is no lack of uh, reading lists. Fortunately, we can uh, have access to as many uh, uh, readers as possible. People from the Global South, for example, have written so many uh, uh, works, uh, whether their work, uh, all of that work is relevant or not is another question. Uh, so for me, you know, it is not about diversifying the reading list, which is important. For me, it is actually a question what we believe to be the source of knowledge is. Where does our understanding of uh, a change it or a decolonial understanding of the world come from? And I don't believe that it primarily comes from reading textbooks or reading published uh, accounts. However important that might be, we, all, we understand the uh, institutional policing of ideas and how ideas and knowledges are produced. Uh, so as long as knowledge production is implicated in that colonial tradition, uh, we don't really hear a lot of voices from people who are marginal, who are uh, excluded, uh, except as a data, except as an information to kind of supply some form of theory by, by the writer. So in my approach, I think, uh, 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 of course, we do have uh, as a diverse uh, and critical uh, reading list, uh, but the topics are very important and how we learn about the things that we, or we, we are going to learn is very important. So we focus on methodology. And I give you an example. We have a course, a unit called the Human Rights History Across Cultures and Religions. So what we do within that course is to question this very concept of the human, this very idea of what does it mean to live by rights and, and what does it imply? Uh, and also, what does it mean to understand the past as history as opposed to, for example, legends, stories uh, uh, of peoples and so on? Uh, and uh, how do we understand culture? What are, the, what are the ways in which we understand religion? So a kind of a critical questioning of these concepts are very important. But another important dimension that goes with this is to invite people who have lived experiences within these fields to come to the classroom and teach from their experiences. I invite people from uh, uh, Islamic tradition, for example, scholars of Islam, scholars of Buddhism, scholars of uh, Judaism, uh, of uh, Christianity and so on. So these people come to the classroom and the students based on their lived experience and understandings of the world and how the world could be better based on insights that they get from their own experiences. And after they lecture the students, then the students will have a chance to reflect based on what they get from them, to reflect on the world, on their learning, and to kind of capture, understand the new concepts so that they expand the grammar that they have in writing and describing reality or, or the world. Uh, so that is, that is one, one, one approach. And the second important point, which has been mentioned repeatedly earlier, is uh, the, the, the relationship between this uh, diversifying knowledge or reading list versus the language we use to study these concepts. And, uh, and it's very ironic in a way to think that we can do so much decolonial work using colonial languages. Because colonial languages, including English, have got these concepts that, that are very much uh, uh, not open 
to incorporate experiences and, and ideas that come from the global south. Imagine seminar work or gold, uh, 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 wax and gold in the Ethiopian tradition to be taught in English or interpreted and be part of that, that, that discourse. So language, it's very important to understand the limitations that we have in our work because our work is quite limited by the language we use and which is which is primarily the English the, the English language and I, I I don't want to take a lot of time but you know it's really important also to think about the institutions you know we we're thinking of challenging institutions without which we may not be able to have our careers and uh, um, as uh, Rosalba was earlier saying and also uh, uh, Altamaria was saying you know issues related to safety to what extent I can push you know the this uh, the, the the frontier uh, and be critical of and and what are also the things that we can offer, the things that we can replace. Uh, 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 and and we are there is a sense of vulnerability as well that comes with engaging with this this type of ideas. And I think finally as as a way out, I think we should think of not just focusing so much in colonial constructions, but also focusing so much in building uh, relationships, in building networks, in trying to know how to work together. And for example, what Roslava was talking about, uh, using new language and new words to really uh, describe the world, that, that, that's very empowering that we see things like that are important for us to learn from. Uh, so, you know, we can diversify our way of learning by not just focusing only on the literature, but also on other things that do not often come to the literature. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Yuga. I've seen some of the questions that were already forwarded, at least somehow sent to me from the moderators have already been uh, touched upon one way or another, for instance, uh, how do you incorporate indigenous knowledge or experiences in your teaching methods? I think what you mentioned, what Hilda mentioned and Rosalba mentioned somehow addresses that. Uh, the intersectionality of the decolonial agenda is also somehow raised here. I think uh, Rosalba mentioned it uh, in one of her presentation where some, some, most of the time, students that are coming from the global south are usually students of students who are already exposed to uh, the Western ideology or experience in terms of their uh, educational background or their socioeconomic status. So how do we ensure that intersectionality so that that process may not, uh, should not somehow be disregarded is I think one thing that we need to emphasize. There's one question directed to Yirga, but I would rather go for the third question that we have and probably because we are we already come, we have already used an hour and five minutes of our scheduled time. We are 25 minutes to go. But I want us to share another practical experience from our uh, classrooms about handling classroom discussions. I think that the intersectionality element would be quite important here. Because from my experience of teaching African development using decolonial perspectives, what I have kind of understood is, of course, some of the key issues that, I, that we were discussing in the course were quite new for most of my students. And some of them were saying that, why didn't we learn about these issues when we did our bachelor degrees? As you know, most of the time, development is usually a postgraduate course. And some of them were saying that, like, 
some of the issues that we discussed in the classroom were already being discussed in the dinner table of my students' household, right? So they were they found the concept, the ideas, the history that we were uh, learning, the, the, the topics that we were unlearning and unthinking were quite relevant. And so I had lots of students coming from other courses, not taking my course, but wanted to at least to read some of the course materials because they were not exposed to them at all. But the problem was also how to handle the classroom discussions, because sometimes usually people associate this decolonial thinking, particularly with your skin color. So long as you are black or Latin American or Asian, you have the authority to claim all the knowledge about decolonial thinking, kind of victimizing our colleagues from Europe or from North America or the non-black uh, non uh, students. So that kind of dynamism is quite, was quite challenging. And I want us to share our experience. How do you handle classroom discussions and debates so that that positionality, that intersectionality would be used as a good input and element into our conversation rather than creating tensions within our classroom? Because the issue is all about politics as Altia Maria mentioned uh, quite a few times. So I will start with Jirga, then with Altia, then Rosalva. So how do you handle classroom discussions where such kinds of elements are coming into the, into the conversation? Um, I think uh, partly because probably the, 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 the whole time I'm, I'm, I'm involved in uh, the Center for Human Rights Education, uh, we I work with uh, postgraduate students, students who are quite interested in human rights and interested in uh, making some uh, change in the world, uh, and, and a lot of them with uh, significant uh, uh, work experience as well. Uh, so often, uh, you know, it is not too difficult to uh, try to create the opportunity for them to discuss based on their experiences and their understanding. And I think one of the most important thing in uh, in this work is to really not answer questions or uh, give a lot of ideas, but to know uh, the, the, to ask the right questions or to uh, enable uh, uh, students to be comfortable with their ideas, that, that to understand that they have the right to uh, 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 to speak and to tell uh, their version of reality, because there is no as such a definite reality that has to be uh, studied uh, by others or by them. Uh, so with, with that approach, the first and the most important uh, uh, step is to really have that clear understanding of getting away from this notion of kind of banking model of education where you, you, you deposit knowledge on, on others. They are there, we are there together to co-create reality, to learn about the world. Uh, uh, and by using not just conventional but non-conventional languages and, and ideas. Uh, so that is that is that is uh, critically important. Uh, another then on the base of that, we invite, for example, or we we invite people who have uh, uh, lived experiences for for in particular from the indigenous community here in Australia. Uh, these are people who have enormous culture, enormous uh, history, enormous wells that can be shared uh, to so many people even outside of Australia. But uh, a significant uh, um, 
part of their existence is not really visible, is not really known. So we take the opportunity to study and learn from them. Uh, these are not often, these learnings do not necessarily take place in classrooms. We go out in the field, we go out in the places where they live, in the place where they sit down and tell stories, and then we share those experiences with them. And another important areas is to also see spaces of different forms of violence. For example, when you study in relation to epistemic violence or the violence of knowledge, uh, we can take the example of the uh, accumulation of um, so-called artifacts, uh, sources of knowledge is collected from uh, indigenous people, from Africans, from different parts of the world and stored in museums and, and libraries and stored there and kept there as artifacts. Whereas these materials, are, are some of them are actually uh, uh, important textbooks, important icons of phase and learning. You, you can take the example of Ethiopian uh, textbooks. Ethiopians wrote more than a million Giz manuscripts in their own languages, but none of us study those books. Those are stolen looted by different uh, organizations and museums, and they are everywhere in the West, most of them, a lot of them at least. So, but if you go back to Ethiopia in places where a traditional education is happening, the students do not have access to these books. They study, you know, they try to memorize the texts from the mouths of their teachers. By seeing this type of uh, 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 contexts to show to students the level to which epistemic violence or uh, the, the destruction of knowledge is perpetuated in the world it, uh, can kind of give an important insight when they go to museums, when they go to libraries, that they can differently understand the texts that they see there. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Yulga. So, uh, Altia, what's your response to this question? Like, how do we ensure that the unlearning, the rethinking or the unthinking of Eurocentric epistemological order occur in our classroom discussions and among our students and any practical experience with this regard, please? Um, yeah, so I had actually prepared something else to say uh, in response to this question, but I think I'm gonna respond directly to, to what you've just kind of asked uh, because it's really important. Um, so I think creating a safe space, I've mentioned a few times and so is Rizaba, is, is mm. really important in the class, right? Uh, but that is different than catering to fragility, right? So, I tend to, and I think it's important for us to recognize that, you know, silencing students, so students of color, for example, and students from the global south are often silenced, right, in terms of when these um, topics come up, right, they feel that they can't speak or they do speak and then they feel that they're essentialized and have to represent everyone. So often it's not a good experience for them, right? Um, so what I tend to do is begin my class with discussions about these issues, right, in terms of not the, the curriculum, but the pedagogy and how we're going to like hold the space and each other over the term. And so there is an acknowledgement that we will, we will talk about power, that there are going to be different, uh, diff different and difficult conversations, that you have various positionalities, that you may be uncomfortable, right, that everyone comes in with different experiences and we are all equal in terms of what we bring. Um, so there are not a set of rules, but there's a discussion about the, you know, the, the learning space that yeah. um, we're going to, you know, engage with over the term. And I think that's really important because um, if we, if we don't have those discussions, then one students may not know what to expect because, you know, the, the institutions that we are in are 
very uh, colonial and in terms of the content that they receive, but also it allows students to feel, I think that it's a space where they can share their experiences or be empowered. And that's, that's really important. So I think my approach is to not shy away from these things because my curriculum doesn't shy away from it. And I'm, I don't shy away from myself in discussions, but to allow them to, to recognize that and then make the decisions about, you know, how they engage with each other and whether they stay in the class or not. Really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Rosalba. Well, I, I, I simply need to echo what Althea has just mentioned. As popular mm -hmm. educator, I'm trained as a popular educator as well, and I learned from popular educators here in, in Mexico. And the space of the classroom, is, it's, um, it's a sacred space in the sense of all the possibilities that it can have, not mm -hmm. only for learning uh, curricula, but also for uh, transforming our subjectivities, understanding where we're coming from, um, and for that, you need to capture um, that space with um, principles. I call them principles of engagement that I don't, I don't design. I, I start with um, a session in which all the participants are um, co-creating them with simple questions as what find you difficult to, to hear or, or what makes you feel uncomfortable and, that, and, and you try to run away or, or not being prepared to listen in the setting of a classroom. And then when, when we start to answer these questions, then we know which, which are the principles of engagement. But as Altea is mentioning, this is not necessarily saying this is a space in which everybody's going to feel comfortable. No, at all. This is a, a space in which tension is going to be present. Um, and therefore I spent perhaps the same amount of time um, planning each of the sessions that I spent in uh, choosing the readings, uh, very good planning of an introduction, a pause, a debriefing, um, a follow-up with students who have experienced my own courses has been the way I have been navigating the decolonial. It's not something that I'm, uh, I, I can claim any expertise because actually the experts are the students that have gone through my courses who have constantly shown me this, this didn't work or this might work differently. And in the last couple of years, all the sessions of my courses are co-designed with former students of mine who come and said, this can be done differently. For example, this idea of um, associating the decolonial with only students from the global south is something that we constantly have to address because then uh, students from European descent, especially white students, then are not necessarily invited to the conversations. No, on the contrary, everybody has different burden in the process of decolonizing the self, of decolonizing our um, uh, references when uh, engaging in conversations. And therefore our different positionalities bring different responsibilities. But at the end of the day, as instructor, as a teacher, of course, I have to hold the space. I have to hold the space for people uh, feeling not part of the conversation or overtaking the conversation. Um, it's not easy, but it requires a lot of planning and a lot of time. Um, that's what I can say now. Okay, uh, there are lots of questions for added by uh, my colleagues to me, and I would just highlight some of them. I think some of them have already been addressed. One, another issue that's already, uh, that was raised by our participants is Usually the decolonizing agenda is somehow dominating uh, uh, topics on education and development. And I think the person wanted to know 
whether that's also the case in other fields of studies. And I think there, uh, that's quite visible and you can see lots of other decolonial agendas in other fields of studies, not only education and development, but there's quite a good question down there where should we also be concerned about decolonizing or engage with the idea of decolonizing primary level, secondary level education in, uh, in our entire education system, but not only in the, in the university system. I think this, is, this question is quite important and already highlighted by Yirga, but if you want, please respond to that. There's another question from my colleague in the International Development Department, Laura Mal. She asked that, uh, she said, thanks for the interesting panel. I wanted to ask a question about decolonization movement and the recognition and highlighting of pluralism within economics. Sometimes I think when people are critiquing, I'm reading this from my, okay, let me enlarge it. Oh, where is it? I think I missed it when I, okay. Critic, well, okay, I think when people are critiquing economics and economic development models, they seem to be directing their critique uh, more narrowly at the neoclassical paradigm of development, which is currently hegemonic, but this is not the only form of economics out there. The conflation of neoclassical economics as economics ends up at referring that hegemony and neglecting the contributions of many important heterodox economists from Latin America, Africa, Asia, such as Mushtaqan, Tandika Mekandore, Raul Prebish, Nkoma, or Hajung Chang, among many others. How can we make clear to students that the historical origins of development theory, I think there is a good question here. How can we make clear to our students that the historical origins of development theory are numerous and that development as an idea is not just a European idea? I would like to hear our panel's response to this. Uh, Ruth Kinuya has been raising questions about the inclusion of indigenous knowledge. And one uh, question around that area is, as one of the panels mentioned in, if the initial dynamics do not fully support a decolonized discourse. There was also another question about to what extent that this pursuing decolonial curriculum need some kind of negotiation or conflict with our initial dynamics. So do the panels observe real world progress in accepting alternative perspective? That is, is there applicability and recognition in the international development profession of the classroom conceptual frameworks? Uh, I wonder to what extent these questions really touch uh, or speak to your particular location as an academic profession uh, as a, an academic professional in your uh, respective field of studies. But feel free to respond to any of these questions in the remaining. Uh, so I will give you like two, three minutes each so that we will, we will end up our, our, our webinar. So may I start with Altia Maria? Would you mind responding to any of the questions? Um, sure. Uh, so maybe the first question about is it important to decolonize not just higher education, but other levels of education? I think absolutely. Right. So it's and it's not just about um, 
you know, decolonizing, I guess, or taking an educational justice approach to formal education, but really thinking mm -hmm. about the spaces in which we learn and how we understand the world and relate to each other. Really, that's so that's a much larger project, right? We're all, you know, situated in academic institutions today, but, you know, the, the work is much more expansive and uh, historical than that. Um, and then just quickly, the question about development theory, bringing in, so, you know, development to me, and I think all of us on the panel have spoken to uh, about this today, you know, it's not about the Western project as such, right? So if you attach development theory to the Western development project, then it, it is about Eurocentric knowledge in, in that sense and, and resistance to that. But mm -hmm. if you reimagine or re-envision what development is, so I always think of development as processes of, you know, change and transformation, and that is something that every society through the, the other history of the world has engaged in, right? Mm -hmm. Then the theory about that, and theory is always rooted for me in everyday life, right? So the, the, the meaning that we give to those different processes of change and transformation are also rooted in the experiences of, um, you know, societies all over the world throughout history, right? And that's where, you know, you can then bring in different theories and ideas um, into, into, you know, your learning processes or curriculums or departments or whatever spaces that you're in. So it's diversifying that. Okay, great. Uh, Rosalba? Sorry, I thought that I was the third one. Um, Sorry. Yeah, uh, other fields, of course, we are undoing colonial legacies. Um, mm. uh, there is a whole project in which, um, yeah, here in the Netherlands, we are uh, involved with uh, curricula in primary and secondary schools. So, um, but what is important for me to mention about that is that uh, when we are trying to undo colonial legacies, we also have to be aware of the plurality of the horizons um, that, um, different struggles for decolonization have had over uh, 500 years um, related to land, to reparations, perhaps in other settings to inclusive education. So there is a plurality of, hor of political horizons. In terms of the, um, the confusion and the, or the conflation between neoclassical economics and economics as a field, yes, I agree with you. But uh, some of the cases, some of the, the authors that you mentioned, Raul Prebisch, Raul Prebisch, yes, of course, fantastic, but it's a product of a modernizing and Eurocentric uh, discipline as economics. So um, he, of course, contributed a lot, but it was um, clear that his role as one of the elite, elitist uh, economists in Latin America reproduced many of the problems of development as an Eurocentric and, and I would say anthropocentric in kind project for humanity. So I have my own doubts that this is enough plurality. Um, if we only said Previsch or all the other uh, economists. Um, as for, there is a question that I really want to touch very briefly, this idea that uh, to, to deconstruct is to decolonize. Please, no, no. Um, um, there is a lot that has already been written. Deconstruction belongs to a specific geo-historical uh, tradition of European critical uh, thinking. Um, and when we are talking about decolonizing, we have a different set of, uh, genealogies um, that are mostly coming from anti-colonial struggles. So one has to be very careful in confusing in confusion that, that, that what we are doing is deconstruction, not at all. And just a reference, Kathy Walsh is someone that very clearly differentiated between deconstruction uh, and the drive to uh, undoing colonial legacies through uh, the work of Fanon, but there are many others. So please, no, it's not the same. <laughs> okay. Great. Yirga, would you be comfortable to, to respond to any of the questions? Mike? 
I can say a few words, yeah, a few things. Uh, I think um, in terms of thinking about the origin of development and uh, how it is plural, uh, uh, of course, it depends on how we think about development. But what is, I think, for me, important in, in thinking something to be plural is to, uh, to, to really understand that there is something behind it. When we think of ideas that come from the global south, uh, these, are, these must be ideas that are rooted in how people live there. It's not based on how we respond to European writings, uh, to challenge, uh, to critique what they say. That's not just decolonial, but instead to kind of bring out, speak about the, 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 the knowledges, ideas, and, and lived experience of people who, whose, whose experience are excluded. Uh, so that, that is very important. And secondly, it's also important to focus uh, not just as a diversity of ideas, but their relationship to institutions. You, you, you can have a lot of ideas, but you know, uh, in, in the world we live in, certain ideas are selected and are put into practice by institutions. Not all ideas hold the same power. So in that case, we are deliberate, and I think we should be deliberate in focusing uh, the, on the critique of these dominant ideas that are also put into action through institutions. And that is why I think focusing uh, and decentering and, and critiquing uh, Western dominant uh, ideas of the economy are, are very important. Uh, I say that because it should not kind of water down. It's not kind of make it look like, okay, there are also economic ideas somewhere else. Let's just know about them and that is it. And that's not gonna be enough because we need to think about uh, uh, not just the ideas, but how the ideas are used by institutions and practice. And finally, I think there is, there is possibly, this is just my own view, there's a, a, a possibility to think about decolonization not as just one thing. And, uh, and, and in some way, uh, it can be misused uh, uh, and can become, uh, I, I can say sometimes it could become, you know, uh, 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 even dangerous, and I, I say that in, in the context of Ethiopia. Uh, there is, a, a, for, to some extent, in, in the Ethiopian uh, um, last 50 years, there is this rise of very critical ideas about decolonization in Ethiopia. But that idea was to focus on decolonizing Ethiopian traditional indigenous ideas by reading them as Western constructs. You know, uh, uh, in, in recent times, especially when the country is divided into different ethnic groups, the different ethnic groups are regarded as nations. And in order to create national stories, they started to kind of incorporate ideas from phenomena from the decolonial perspective and claim that these nations exist as existed in the past as, as autonomous entities ethnicization and the proliferation of violence and so on. And some of these critical uh, sort of critical ideas about decolonization are used to amplify uh, uh, and to kind of present Ethiopia's uh, uh, previous existence as a colonial existence where, uh, it, it, where the reality was not that Ethiopians fought against the Europeans and were excluded from the world that's how they maintain their tradition and culture and so on. So in, though, in, in different contexts, we should have really a decolonial reading based on how people live, how people, what people want, what they are thinking, not just based on how we respond 
to these dominant ideas that come from the West. Okay, uh, thank you. And I, we are running out of time, but I would like to give all the three speakers at least a minute and a half to wrap up. But while doing so, I'm asked by, my, by one of my colleagues that I, there was a question that uh, at least the, the parents need to respond to the question that have more uh, upvotes and you have already responded to one of them. And the other with more uh, upvotes is a question which says, isn't the fact that all your panels or our panels are researchers based in Northern universities as a form of Eurocentrism? I think that's a good uh, question to respond to. And by way of answering this, you can also have uh, an additional like 30 seconds to wrap up and finalize uh, your contribution here. And I will start with uh, Altea, then to Yirga, and I will finish with Rosalba. Um, okay, so I think I actually picked up that question earlier on in the conversation and I, I responded. And so maybe I'll just quickly repeat that. It's important that we don't, I mean, I would be interested to see like who, who asked that question really, but it's important that we don't essentialize, right? So we all have complex experiences and positionalities and politics. And so we need to go beyond just where someone is located to think about, you know, what is the imperative behind their work? What are their politics? You know, and how are they approaching these particular ideas and topics, right? Because otherwise we just um, lend ourselves to really kind of like universalizing kind of knowledges and ways of being and interacting with each other. And just quickly in terms of the two things I wanted to say to wrap up, uh, several people mentioned indigenous knowledge and just being being a person of indigenous descent myself, I just wanted to highlight that it's not just about putting indigenous knowledge into the curriculum or the institution because there's you know centuries long kind of history of appropriating indigenous yeah. ways of being and knowledge, particularly in terms of you know now we see that happening with the climate change debates. And so we need to, I just want to say, you know, to be careful about how we engage with these things. Right? Um, and also lastly, it's important just to respond to one more question in the, in the chat that we reimagine colonial regimes and, and border thinking, right? And Rosalba talked about this a little bit, but you know, uh, it's not just about decentering Europe. It's about understanding how people in the globalized South marginalized experiences, how they've connected to each other, right? So when we talk about the Haitian revolution, it's not just about the Haitian revolution vis-a-vis -vis France and the enlightenment ideas. It's about how slave communities in Venezuela, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Jamaica engaged with each other and what that story is, right? So it's resituating these different conversations as well. Okay, Thank great. You. Yerga, would you mind responding to, to the question about your position in, uh, in a university in Australia as a, a manifestation of Eurocentrism and any concluding remark? Two minutes. Uh, well, I think I, as, as uh, uh, Al was saying, right, I think I agree with that because uh, our, our identities have, um, have complex uh, complexities. And as I said, I, um, I uh, yes, I have studied in the West, and I have my, a lot of my ideas and thinking uh, are uh, Western ideas. Uh, but at the same time, I also come from Ethiopian experience of the traditional system and the rural area. That is a, an area of knowledge and space that I want to amplify and talk about. Not just to talk about it, but also but to try to encourage us to listen and to learn from that experiences. And I think for me. Uh, one of the most important questions is to ask who is a teacher or who is the person who is telling us about, about this the idea that we are learning. And uh, uh, that question is important in, in, because we need to uh, invite people who, who are not professionals, who are 
outside of the classroom or the academia uh, so because they, they their knowledge and ideas represent the people's uh, and the people's lived experiences and so on. So uh, with that, then I think, uh, yes, I can say I'm, 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 I'm West, you know, I, I'm, I live in a Western university and I'm a Western person. And if I go to Ethiopia, I would have a privilege uh, to be treated as a knowledgeable person, although my knowledge, significant amount of my knowledge is based or learned in Western universities, whereas uh, the professors and the indigenous people who taught me or the traditional people who taught me uh, have studied for 30 years in, the, in their traditional system uh, and are so knowledgeable in Ethiopian knowledges, they are not treated as professors or doctors, uh, whereas I would be treated like that. So my challenge for us is how do we overcome that? How do we actually allow uh, ourselves to be a student to learn from uh, those who uh, who really uh, know a lot about uh, the world where they live in. Okay, great. Thank you. Gozalba, I respond to that question and also concluding remark, two minutes. Well, yes, I think that is, is a very important question. Um, despite despite the, its politics, but um, um, the way I answer is with uh, also quoting again, Olivia Rutatsiwa, we might be in an institution, but we are not the institution. Um, Perhaps because of our complex uh, positionalities, we can understand how institutions work and realize that we are not necessarily um, part of that institution because we come from complex uh, subject formation experiences. Um, so I, I tend to see the limitations of, of institutions, perhaps because of my lack, my lack of trust on institutions. But anyway, um, I think that uh, the other challenge that we have is that in many cases we are, well, we are using the tools of the masters uh, that uh, keep dehumanizing us. And given the parameters of those possibilities, uh, we understand that um, these tools are not telling us the whole story or the whole picture of what we can do and how we can actually decolonize ourselves and others. And finally, we're speaking through a colonial language. Um, uh, yeah, and my, my main language is Spanish and other colonial language. And, um, and this brings me to my last point that is this, uh, that even that we're using a colonial language to communicate each other right now in English, there is a lot of um, time that we have to invest in learning each other, in connecting our stories of um, different um, processes of subject formation, different stories of, of, of um, undoing colonial legacies. So it's as complex as that, as Althea was mentioning. Okay, great. That was a great contribution from all of you, and I thank you on that. And I think for as a way of also just adding on that, I think it's quite important not to conflate that our epistemic position, our epistemic location, our epistemic identity may not necessarily relate to who we are or where we are best. It doesn't really matter whether of course, it matters, but the epistemic, the epistemic location should also be given a, a, a serious consideration one way or another. We are seven minutes behind schedule, but I think we had done a lot in terms of covering lots of issues around decolonizing development studies or in general practical issues about course designing, reading materials, and also handling classroom discussions. Uh, I don't know how to wrap up this, but I will just simply emphasize that Thank you for my 
panels, Altea Maria Rivas, Rodal Vaikaza, and Yirga Galawaldeyes, and also my colleagues from the Institute Af for Africa, Kojo Ajepai and Anna Dalton. For our participants, we had nearly like 150 something participants from the very beginning. At, at the, on our mark, we had 120, I think. Now we have around 86. So it's dwindling, but I think the questions that we raised were quite useful. This is just a beginning of somehow broadening the conversation about the decolonial agenda. We are not here to give answer to each and every question. We are just reflecting and responding to some of our concerns and also sharing our experiences. I think we have managed to do that in a very in, in, a, in a very good way, and I thank all the panelists in doing so. So, without uh, any further ado, I would like to call Anin to this uh, panel and round of applause for those of us who can clap or <laughs> those of us who can see each other. And thank you everyone for your attendance. I hope the recording of this uh, webinar will be available on the YouTube channel, particularly on the, uh, the Pyrozoology Institute for Africa YouTube channel. So you can definitely go back to it and hear more from our speakers. And also you, all our speakers, their professional uh, bio is available in their respected university sites, so you can reach them and talk to them and continue the conversation in any way that you want to. So, uh, thank you for your time. Good night to Yurga. Have a good day to Rosalva, and uh, have a good afternoon for Altea Maria. <laughs>